Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, sponsored by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer. And I'm Katie Hopkins, and we'll be your hosts. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Tasha Jones, a U.S. Navy veteran and founder of 2039, a purpose-built solutions and services partner leveraging over 25 years' experience in the U.S. government market space. Tasha is a recognized problem solver and data champion, adept at translating complex business and technical concepts into simple, focused messages and implementations. From scaling multi-million dollar, functionally diverse global portfolios, to spearheaded multiple high-visibility project turnaround efforts for major IT systems and processes at the U.S. Department of Justice. Ms. Jones is an industry-recognized leader in developing data-informed solutions, turning around off-the-rail projects, and just getting the job done. As an ardent champion of entrepreneurship and innovation, Tasha is a Citrine Angels board member, a D.C.-based angel group of women investing in women and has mentored with and supported FedTech, a venture firm at the intersection of entrepreneurship, breakthrough technologies, and mission-driven organizations. Hi, Tasha. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. We're so happy that you're here with us tonight. If you could see our faces, we're all smiling. Yes, we are. Yes, all smiling. Well, we're so thrilled that you came and joined us uh, here tonight in Iron Butterfly Studios. I don't think I've ever said that. Ooh, I like the sound of that. I know. And it does look like a Iron Butterfly Studio. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, like kick ass and, ooh, can I cuss? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like kick ass girl power. Yeah. Well, that is Megan's vibe. It's my vibe, but I think you know that. Yes. Um, so we're going to start off. I know you've listened to our podcast before, and we want to just start off by getting to know you and having our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So we want to know about your background. We want to know how you grew up and what brought you to the military and ultimately the IC. Well, I started off in Central Florida. Don't judge me from that. (laughs) Everybody got jokes about Florida. So, you know, but I grew up in Central Florida, uh, born and raised in uh, Winter Haven in Bartow, which is in Polk County and very country, a lot of cows, a lot of agriculture, um, which is funny because people think I'm not country sometimes until they get to know me. And then I get really comfortable and I start talking and say certain words and when does it come out most? Uh, drinking. I I was going to say, I bet you it's when you're drinking or with family, but I think that goes hand in hand sometimes. And so, yeah, I grew up, I grew up in central Florida 
And I, I don't have like a family history of a whole lot of military, but there's there's quite a few of us that have been in the military over the over the years. And um, I have a huge family. My grandparents, they had 10 children, eight girls, two boys, and all of them has have multiple children. And my mom only had two. But, you know, we grew up around a lot of family. And, you know, for me in school, I was uh, I was very studious. I got good grades for the most part. And I like structure. And so I was an ROTC in high school. Um, I was a battalion commander eventually. And then I was thinking like, okay, what am I going to do? Well, I know there wasn't a lot of money to go to school and I was deathly afraid of debt. And so the thought <laughs> I guess of, that's a good thing to me, deathly afraid of. Yeah, I was deathly afraid of debt. And the because of my environment, I saw like it felt like shackles, like to have debt. So um, so I was like, oh, I don't want to take out loans to go to college, even though, you know, I had some scholarships. I was like, but what about living expenses and other things? And I, a lot of my family had not been to college. And so I didn't have as many resources to give me ideas or examples or help model like how you do that. And so because I was in ROTC and I had been talking to a few people had been in the military, I started to consider that as an option. And um, my senior year, the recruiter that was at our school um, talked to him in depth about like things that I enjoy doing, what I don't like doing. And long story short, he was like, you definitely want to designate, you know, what rate you want to go. Cause I had, it, there was no choice as far as like army or Marines and no shade to my army and Marine <laughs> brothers and sisters, because we need them and they do an amazing job, but it was between air force and Navy. And at the time air force, love the air force, but they rank slow, like really slow. Right. So I was like, rank is pay. So mm-hmm. Navy was it. I was like, you're it Navy. Oh and that's how I kind of picked the Navy. And the recruiter was like, yeah. Um, you want to, you know, it might be good to pick a rate instead of going undesignated, which is opposite, I think, of what some recruiters do. Um, and a rate is uh, like your job, basically, in the Navy. And um, I, based on my ASVAB scores and like things that I like to do, I ended up designating as an Intel specialist. Did you expect that? Kind of, because <laughs> it was weird. When I was younger, I had all these things I wanted to do. Like, I wanted to be a dentist. And I wanted to be a model and I wanted to be a spy and I wanted to be um, a business owner. So it was like, I wanted, (laughs) I wanted to do, I was like, my, during my life, I want to do all these things. And only thing I haven't done has been a dentist. So so I'm a spy. I haven't been a spy, but yeah, but people who don't know what you've done in the intelligence community, they think you are a spy. You know, they do. And in the Navy, they call intelligence. Well, I don't know if they still do, but they call intelligence specialists spooks or whatever. And then they used to give this story. It's like for a school, there's a there's a Marine for every intel specialist. Their job is to kill you if you like get caught or something like that. And it was just, you know, banter to try to make you scared or whatever. But yeah. So some people probably do think that's what it was, but nah. And I'm sure we'll probably get into that. That's awesome. So how did you then make the transition from military? Like, did you ever work outside of the military intelligence community or kind of how did you make that transition out of the military and into the civilian intelligence community? Yeah. So I wasn't in the military very long. Um, and that definitely was not planned because my goal was to be the most senior female military Navy officer ever. And, um, you know, I made E5 in like less than two years and got accepted at the time. It was broadened opportunities for officer selection and training boost. 
I don't know if they still have that program today, but, um, so I was supposed to go to officer candidacy and everything. And I ended up meeting my husband. Well, I had been met him, but we became more serious and he was already Navy. He had been in over 10 years and, uh, he wanted kids. And so, and I say he wanted kids cause I kind of was like, oh, I'm good, <laughs> you know? Um, but I was like, okay, compromise. All right. You know, and he's older. So I was like, okay, well I get it. I wouldn't want it to be like a grandparent age having my first kid and there's nothing wrong with that, but he didn't want that. So I was like, okay, I can compromise. Um, and we ended up getting married, having kids and stuff. And so we didn't want to leave our kids with family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of us needed to get out and he was closer to retirement. And so I ended up getting out of the military and then going into industry. And because my husband was still active duty, I was still, a, I was still in the military community. Um, and I became a contractor. I think our first base, Naval Station, Naval Air Station, Patuxent River down in Southern Maryland. And um, that's when I kind of wet my feet in being a contractor. And the first job wasn't Intel. Um, it was actually technical. It was a web, wasn't it a webmaster, web developer, mm-hmm. which is funny because back then when you were Intel um, specialist, um, the way that we published our reports, you kind of had to learn HTML and like a little technology. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So when I got out, um, my, for a degree, I started going for, uh, to be a web developer and then I wanted to be a developer. So coding and stuff like that. And so that's kind of how I got my technical chops, um, when I first got out. And so I did that. And then we, every time you got orders and we would move and stuff like that, depending on where we were located, the opportunity to be an intelligence specialist on, um, the industry side would wax and wane. Um, and so I think my first, while I was down in Pax River, I was a reservist and I ended up being with Reserve Intelligence Area 19, I believe it was, out of Andrews Air Force Base. Um, and so uh, Joint J2T, Joint Terrorism Task Force in the Pentagon was my was my duty station. And that was kind of like my soft, it was still military, but it was kind of my soft entry out post active duty in the intelligence world. What was your favorite part about working in the government? I would say my favorite part about working in the government is the capacity to enact change like at scale and not only nationally, but potentially globally, especially as an Intel analyst, like the type of work that you're doing, you're literally um, providing assessments and information to decision makers at the at the most senior levels. And you're potentially saving lives. You're potentially making life and death decisions about certain things when it comes to targeting. And so I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed in that being in that space, like being able to watch TV and be like, mm, that's not, mm, that's not how, it really that's is. not really how, <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it goes. Um, and knowing like what's going on, like really what's going yeah. on. And I think it helped me to be a bit more level headed about just what's in the media and what's in the news and, and having even if I don't know today, like if I'm not in the middle of the mix, right, with everything that's happening, I have an idea of how things do work and I'm a little less quick to jump to a conclusion if somebody does something that may be at odds with how I think about something. So, yeah, I think that was the best part is is having that ability to have to be engaged and work on things that you're, you just wouldn't be able to work on 
um, if you weren't in the government because they don't outsource that stuff. So I love every part of that answer. Um, the fact that, you know, making decisions at scale and change at scale and then being too close to it sometimes. So when you see it portrayed in different, like I'll, I'll talk from my experience, like some of these shows that you see on streaming platforms or whatever, sometimes I can't watch them because I think it's just too close and I know all the errors they're going to make in it. And then I'm like, I can't watch you see Jack Ryan bike yeah. past the Lincoln Memorial on the way to see it. Some of it's great, you know? No, I mean, I'm watching The Diplomat right now and I love it. Like FYI. Wait, was that one, the, the American? Yes, she's in The oh. Diplomat. Carrie oh, Russell. Really? Yes. Okay. Shout out Carrie Russell. <laughs> <laughs> but then you also said um, that, you know, you take pause now when you see decisions made in the news or, you know, you hear about things that are happening in the government, even though you're not there, even if it's at odds, you said with what you believe you do pause because you know that decisions are not made in, you know, in a vacuum. They're not, they're not made just by one person with, you know, snap of a finger. So um, I, I just, I love that answer. And especially in the IC, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize the rules. There's so many rules um, and protections and, you know, um, gates that limit how you look at certain types of data, um, especially when it's homeland, right? When it's yeah. U.S. citizens. And um, a lot, I think a lot of Americans, because media has, because of the sensationalism of intelligence and because um, of just you know, not just sensationalism of intelligence, but just trying to make something more entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of U.S. citizens um, feel like the government's just like in the background looking at and listening to everything and doing all this stuff. And it's like, don't nobody got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to hear your phone calls. About your, you know, this and this and that. And so it's like, and, and, and they can't like, there's literally a uh, policy and technical, um, you know, stop gaps to mm -hmm. prevent people from doing certain things. That's not to say that you have bad actors and people that do things they're not supposed to, um, but it happens. And, and I really think it's also a cultural shift too, where, you know, people get upset about the government looking at certain types of data. And it's like, but you give so much of that same data away on these free apps. I know I do on my Candy Crush. I, I know Candy Crush is old, but I still play it. And it's like how much data you give away on your phone from being connected, but then you don't want the government to use it. But then you want to, you know, complain about the government not being able to stop certain things. And it's like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I do believe like having been in the community has definitely shaped and transitioned how I see things and think about stuff. And um, when I'm talking to others, how it influences what I say. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you just had such an amazing career in so many different capacities. I'm also curious, like what your bad days in government looked like, like what were your least favorite parts about working in government? It starts with a P and ends with an S, politics. <laughs> There's no politics. No. Politics. <laughs> because I'm a, I just like solving problems. I like doing the work and getting it done. I like seeing something go from raw, unfinished to being, you know, curated, useful, complete, 
and applicable, like actionable. I really enjoy that. And um, the politics just ruin it yeah. every time. And and not just the big politics, but the little politics. You know, there are just as in any industry, any market, people that's a little power hungry um, or climbers, you know, and they make decisions sometimes for the very wrong reason, like of trying to position themselves or what they think is important or what have you. And it's a it's it's people. Politics is people, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you have like those types of little situations, whether it's a big P or a little P, um, that those were the worst days, in my opinion. That, I, that That's top on the list. A close second is like when you don't get all the information and you make the wrong assessment and it adversely impacts something like that. That's a bad day. But I would say the politics piece probably it, it's up there with that. They, they Those are probably the top two. Well, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. And um, so you leave government and you found you started your own company. And so I want you to walk us through that decision, because I think there's a lot of listeners out there that, A, find that a very scary thing to do. And they don't know where to start. You know, how did you know it was a good idea to do it? How did you know where to start? Why did you want to do it? I guess it's all the questions, right? Well, I want to shape the environment. So it's not like I was government and then I just started a company. Um, I was military and then I was a contractor um, for about 12 years, 10, 12 years. And then I was a civil servant at FBI. I was a government employee for a while. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to industry as a contractor on the, but as an executive. And then I was an executive at a small, in a small business, like a really small business. And that kind of gave me a firsthand look at being in a really small company, company inside government contracting. Mm -hmm. And most of that time I was in a leadership role and had a lot of people responsibility in addition to growth responsibility. And honestly, my decision to start my own was after I was with that small company. And I did it, one, to give myself a break, like, and I mean, a break from being responsible for other people so that I could refocus myself and figure out what did I really want to do for the longer term. And um, I didn't know it was the right thing to do. Um, Actually, a situation happened the day before I finished up working with that small company that made me put me in a position where I didn't have guaranteed work that next day, like for with my business. I didn't know what I was going to be, how I was going to make any money. Like it was, but I knew I was like, I'm done. I'm not going to keep going in in any other company. I'm going to do this on my own, but I got to figure it out. And just by happenstance, uh, things worked out and I got a call two hours after I left my last meeting for that the contract that I was on and, and got a subcontract with the partner company at the agency I was working um, within at the time. And so it just happened to work out and network, my network. And I think showing reputation is while I was a consultant was a big part of how I got my work. People knew my work ethic. They knew that I would do a good job. They knew that I would get the job done. And that is kind of what helped me to get started. I did not know what I like, what I was doing. Uh, you know, I just, I knew a little bit, I mean, I knew about business. I mean, I'm an MBA, so I got the basics and the book piece. Um, I don't know if I should tell my story about me playing after my MBA with the business, but uh, um, I'll give you the quick story. So 
I got my MBA and I was like, okay, that's just paper. And you know, what you learn in school is different from application. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I need to figure out, like, I want to play with business and just different models. And long story short, I was one of the, in the like first grouping of the bedroom candy, um, adult massagers, like at home, whatever. Um, I was a consultant, right? So I know there's people like, are you saying that on this podcast? <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I'm not shame. So, um, so I did it and it's supposed to be like drop shipping where you don't, you know, you got your little kit or whatever, but they order and they send it to them in discreet packaging or whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm going to play with this. So like, I reached out to like, um, what is it? The pole dance studios for the work, women working out and like uh, salons, lingerie stores, limousine companies. There used to be a pop-up thing called Shecky's that used to go to different cities. And it was like Shecky's night out, ladies night out. And it's a bunch of vendors like at the dark constitution hall down in DC. Mm-hmm. And then they would have big like sponsors, you know, and I became one of the premier adult massager, whatever company people. And so I would be here mostly in DC, but I did it. I went up to New York sometimes and did it too. And I would buy product. Cause I learned like at the first one, people wanted to buy, they wanted to take it home, take home what they purchased. Yeah. And we had candles and like, clothes and other stuff too, other than massages. And, um, you know, and, and I, and one Christmas I sold, they had this peppermint candle. And so 75% of the proceeds from that, I went and bought like a bunch of stuff for a shelter and like, you know, um, put together packages or, you know, single again packages for limo companies for, um, bridal parties and things like that. Long story short, it taught me to not be afraid of people saying no, because I had a sales um, and you guys can't see me, but I'm doing bunny ear quotes. Sales is something that I was afraid of. And when you're in business, whether you're a product or a service yourself as a consultant, you have to do sales. Um, and the way that I approach sales is I'm trying to help someone figure out how to how to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And if I can help, then I do that. If I can't, I give you what I, information I know and then I refer you to someone that can help. And that's basically what it is. And I learned that through this first business I did with Bedroom Candy. It also taught me to not be how to talk about things in a way that disarms people and makes them comfortable. Because mm-hmm. um, you have to do that talking about sex toys. I mean... <laughs> A lot of people aren't like comfortable with that. Right. So, um, and they call them adult massagers. And then there's, there's also health components around that market that I think people don't even think about. Um, and so, and there's a lot of women who don't feel they have a safe space to have those types of conversations. And that's what it was. And then the third piece is that I played with the business model and I was profitable I learned that the parties didn't work for me because they were time consuming. So doing like, you know, certain events and things like it helped me be creative and it made me not afraid to try things that I didn't know. Um, And it validated some of the book smart stuff that or book uh, study stuff that I learned through my my master's program. And I think it helped make me a better entrepreneur by doing that by having that business. And I had that business while I was a government employee. I had to report that I had the business. It was like, are you serious? I was like, uh-huh, I am. <laughs> you want a party? No. <laughs> Do you know what I love about that is, you know, I know you and I know there's no, there's no um, harder worker out there. I mean, I know how much work you put into your business. And I also know that you are always 
prepared. You put it, not just the work that you do, let's say for your customer, but the work that you do for yourself and for your company and the learning that you put in, you know, that you go out and seek. So you don't know something you put in the time to learn it. And I'm always shocked at the things that you know, because you are so like well-rounded in business and I can ask you anything about business and you are, uh, you have great advice and answers. And I love that in that story, I think the last thing that I got out of that story was that you're, you're not afraid to fail. Like you realized that, you know, this didn't work. So you pivoted it. And sometimes that takes time and resources but you try it anyway. And if it doesn't work, then you know to shift and you're patient with yourself to do that. And I just think all those things are really great lessons. I'm also kind of curious. So obviously we started Iron Butterfly as kind of this passion project that has grown into something. And one thing that we hear from women, especially a lot is, well, I don't, I don't have any ideas. Like I couldn't start a business. I don't have any ideas or like, I'm not a creator. Like, what would you say to women who believe that? I I don't know any women that would say they don't have ideas. Like that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I don't understand. Like, I mean, you can, you can make a business out of, I don't know, uh, how to sleep well. I mean, (laughs) you can make a business out of just about anything. I mean, of course you have to do your market validation and ensure that it can make you the revenue you need in order to survive and all that good stuff. But um, for those women, I say you don't have to jump in like all in no holes bar Mm -hmm. up front. Try something that aligns with what you enjoy doing and um, play with different models of that, you know, and if you don't have um, friends or the network or the community um, to help give you feedback on certain things, find it. Because I mean, today there's just, you can't say, oh, I'm, I'm remote. I'm out in the country. We don't have a lot of stuff. Man, the interwebs is out there. Like there's so many <laughs> communities that are online um, and they're online. So if you're kind of like, hmm, I, I don't want to be sound stupid or be embarrassed they don't know you. So like, you don't know them. So it, it kind of creates the space for you to be able to make those mistakes and to fail um, and go in knowing that you're going to fail. That's part of learning yeah. and, and failing may look different. And I'm using the word fail. I know a lot of people, we, when they hear that, there's a huge negative connotation to it. And it shouldn't be because um, I can sit a glass in the sink and it falls over and that's a fail, but it's not the end of the world. Like yeah. now I know don't hold it by the lip, the lip when I'm sitting it in the sink. So it falls over, like sit it in there, make sure it's stable before I remove my hand. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just know that you're going to fail um, in business, of course. And I say, don't go all in. You want to make sure that you plan. I'm, I'm a big planner. Um, I have like 50 backups to my initial plan. And so if you're going to try something um, and there's a financial investment, can you afford to lose all of that? Like everything. Mm -hmm. And that should be the worst case. And then the best case is you make a ton of money, but you should not do anything that 
takes you to a point where it's going to put you out if you don't have to um, and have a backup. What if this doesn't work out? What's plan B? And then what if that doesn't work out? Have a few plans, right? So, and I think that's what's helped me because people are like, I, I can't believe, man, you're bold. And I'm like, I am so not bold. <laughs> I, I I think my risk is moderate, yeah. but the reason I'm okay taking, taking those risks is because I have back. I know what I'm going to do if this doesn't work out, right? I know what I'm going to do if... I don't reach a certain point. I know what my triggers are. I have triggers of if this doesn't I have certain measures of things that I do. And if I don't meet this by this time, I have to pivot and do something else. That's really amazing. I mean, we, I think we've said this in a couple episodes already this season, but it just shows how much we love them. We love a good side hustle. And I know you have a couple of side hustles and extracurriculars. I'm curious if you could tell us about some of those. Yes. Um, and I would say probably extracurriculars. I don't have time for a side hustle. <laughs> not, with, not with my own business. Um, but I am on the board with Citrine Angels, um, Women Investing in Women uh, in the D.C. region. We're a bit different from a lot of the other angels in that we specialize and focus on um, bringing women to angel investing, teaching them what it is, um, uh, providing training, how to read financial reports or financial balance sheets, um, income statements, things like that, how to evaluate companies, the due diligence process. How do you look at a potential startup and assess and evaluate those companies to hopefully mitigate some of the risk associated with being an angel investor? And um, our our annual fate rate is lower than what you normally see. It's less than $1,000. We don't have a requirement for writing checks annually, like most angel groups do, although most of, a lot of our members do, and we do encourage them to write checks. Um, and they get to learn because we're a mix of women who are new to investing and women who've been doing it for a very long time. And then you have everyone from all different industries. So when we have founders come to pitch us, the questions that are being asked, um, I learn so much every time because it's like I would have never thought to ask that because I don't know anything about medical devices, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know about data, I know about GovCon, I know about other things. So sometimes I ask questions that other people are like, oh, I wouldn't have thought to ask that. So you get to bring together your experiences and expertise and interest um, and do an evaluation. And in the process, we require the, the companies that come through to be 50% owned by a woman. The woman has to be a substantial um, contributor to the business. And so we're helping grow investments in women-founded startups um, because we get 3%, less than 3% of the investment dollars in venture. Um, and for black and brown women, it's significantly less than that. And so instead of begging and pushing and trying to champion the existing organizations to invest more, we're trying to bring more investors, women investors to the space um, in order to enact that change that we want to see. And I'm also, I also have a podcast, which I wouldn't say it's a, it's a hustle. Uh, it, it's a business. Yeah. What's the difference between a hustle and a business? <laughs> it, it, it's a business uh, tool, I would say more so than, than a hustle because it is part of our, our of my company, 2039, we call it Hive 39 is a little community that we're we're trying to grow and bring consultants and small businesses in government contracting together. And um, the Hive uh, 39 model where we provide free acts, free resources um, to small businesses. Uh, we do like a, a quarterly uh, letter um, or call it a Hive report. And it has like policy changes that have happened, events that are coming up um, and events that 
for since I've been a consultant, I've been going to events and I would track my events and I take notes of how useful it is for small business. Um, and so we're not just posting every event that pops up. We're making recommendations for events that really are good for consultants and small businesses. Um, partnering with cost-effective vendors, like we put that information within the community and in the report. And our focus on our podcast, which is unveiled, uh, GovCon Stories, is spotlighting like the reality of being a small business in government contracting, which is directly aligned with our Hive 39 community um, that we have for the business. And our business model is supporting small business. So all of it is tied together and all of it supports the narrative and the push that we're trying to bring more small businesses into government contracting, like new entrants, and help that process be a little bit easier. And for companies that are already there, help them streamline their processes so that they can be more competitive and successful in growing those businesses. Because I feel the small business industrial base in government contracting is in trouble. It's been declining over the last 10 to 12 years um, significantly. There was over 170,000 small businesses registered in SAM um, about what, 2010, 2011. Today, there's less than 70,000. And so it's part of it is the complexity in the process and some of the barriers that exist. Um, that is a way much longer conversation, but to wrap it all up, the, you know, Citrine, um, I am a big proponent for entrepreneurs and for, for the little, the little guys and gals. And so, um, with the priority on gals, do how you want to, (laughs) but, um, and so a lot of the, the areas where I spend my time is helping, um, make it, make life better for, um, for those demographics. Tell us again the name of your podcast and where people can listen. Our podcast is Unveiled GovCon Stories, and you can listen wherever you podcast because, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're on all the platforms. We, we publish out through ACAST, so um, Spotify, Apple, all of them. Love a good podcast. Well, I was just going to say. I know. I know. Podcasting community. Um, I love it. So I'm not sure if you know this, but this is our fifth season. And our theme this season is the butterfly effect. And we were wondering if you could share with us how you believe you've made, and I think you have, but uh, now I want you to give maybe a specific example of how you believe you have made an impact on an individual or an institution or on global scale? This is one of those questions that I dread. Like, I don't like, because I feel like it's a brag. Like That's exactly what we're asking you to do, actually. <laughs> so I would say, I mean, I know I've positively impacted many individuals um, because um, I spent a lot of time in my early, when I first started my consultancy, before I started growing the business, giving away free advisory services, which turned into mentoring, coaching, you know, supporting um, and help launch several people into whether it was new positions or doing their own thing. I guess one person that probably wouldn't mind me calling her out is my co-host on my podcast. Um, She is a consultant. She has her own business now. And tooting my own horn, I do believe I helped her make that transition. I had been talking to her for years. Um, and I knew she'd be good at it. I knew she could do it. Um, and she is, and she's enjoying it. And both of us was just having, we were just having a conversation and saying like, 
I can't imagine going into somebody's company and being an executive and doing that again. Like it, it almost, it's like a, almost an anxiety inducing feeling to even think about it. Kind of freeing. It is. It's scary. Cause it's just like, it, I don't want to make it sound like it's just so great and it's easy and all, cause it's not like you work your behind off. I pro I work way more than I ever worked. Um, but I wouldn't trade it at this point. Well, it's yours. Yeah. And you put your blood, sweat and tears into it because it's, it's yours. It's your passion. It's what you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I know that. And I hope, um, that through how we're doing business and where we're investing time, resources, and money for the small business industrial base, especially in government contracting, because I feel some people are like, why do you care about government stuff? And I'm like, well, one, I kind of grew up in it in my adult life. Two, love it or hate it, it's our government and it's part of our day to day. If you, you can imagine worst case scenario, if our government couldn't function, how that would impact our daily lives safety, security, just peace of mind in society as a whole and how it works. And third, it's like the government, U.S. government is the largest buyer nationally of products and services and one of the largest in the nation, if not the large, I mean, in the global, globally, um, if not the largest. And I believe it presents a space, a market um, that can allow for generational wealth building. And um, being a black woman and coming from, you know, a, a family, a very large family that doesn't have a lot of money, like that's important to me. And it's like a lot of people don't even know that it's a possibility. They hear government contracting and they're like, oh, I can't. That's not for me. It's too complicated. And, you know, too much. And I'm like, no, like, yes, there's a process and it's a lot of work, mm -hmm. but the opportunity is there. And so I want to make sure that for people who want to take that step, that they get the resources and, and have a way, a pathway. I think you know? you're the coolest person of all time. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so we've come to the end. And as you probably know, we ask this question at the end of every episode. And I'm particularly excited for your answer to this question. So in keeping with the name of our podcast, I'm a Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So I struggle with this and I hope I don't upset. Um, I wanted to say Storm because I'm a Marvel fan and that's like my alter ego. But we can't have that. So uh, I came up with Ghost Phoenix. <gasps> Ooh, I like that. I feel like there's a lot there. Yeah. I have always been that person that's in the background. Um, I've done some very exciting projects in Intel. I've worked on some amazing cases that was in the news a lot. And, but I've always been in the background and I didn't learn how me not tooting my horn type of thing, like in my business today, not, you know, people want to know what you've done mm -hmm. and, and having that glamour around you because you did this and you did that and it was publicly acknowledged like it that but I have a I have an internal fight with that because I hate that yeah. but I'm trying to do more of it and if you see me on LinkedIn and you know because I'm all over like I post a lot of stuff well actually I don't post it but you know it's out there and so the ghost piece is because I feel like I've always been somewhat invisible but I'm making that impact and I'm constantly you know doing some amazing stuff and then having to pivot. And it seems like I, I just go away and flame out 
and then I rise again, just oh. like the Phoenix. So it's like, I'm kind of quiet. And, I, and even in my business, like, you know, we're really small. We're just starting to grow. Cause like I said, I, I was a consultant, right. And um, we're starting to scale the business. Now I have employees and I'm looking to go after bigger um, opportunities and contracts and I'm actually growing the business and, but we're quiet. Like a lot of the stuff we're doing is kind of very low key and most companies probably don't recognize or see us as competition at this point or anything. So I feel like we're kind of ghosting right now, but we're going to rise up. It's going to happen. I want to be Tasha when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Tasha, I mean, we, we are just so thankful that you, you came to join us here on Iron Butterfly. We're thankful for your service. We are thankful that you shared your stories and uh, I hope you had a, a little fun. I had an amazing time and thank you so much for having me on. I still don't know why. I appreciate it. I still don't know why, but because there's so many people that does awesome stuff. So, but I, I'm humbled by the fact that you guys even want me on Iron Butterfly. I listen to you guys all the time and um, I think it's amazing what you're doing to highlight and spotlight and put out in the public all the amazing thing that things that women do in the intelligence um, space and the intelligence community um, and hopefully normalizing it. And if you don't do anything else, bringing more women into the space because you need that. We need to have women thoughts and ideas and leaders um, that's influencing intelligence and the shape, how shaping that environment. We couldn't agree more. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast, sponsored by the amazing women of the IC and National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To learn more about Iron Butterfly Media, visit our website at www.ironbutterflymedia.com. To find out more about AWIC, email us at amazingwomen.ic at gmail.com. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. And if you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we want to thank our producer, Amanda Young, and Gracie Richberg, who writes our Iron Butterfly Bulletin. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.